you because of what you've done for us and because of the forgiveness you offer. And we come in your name. Amen. you guys so much. Appreciate that. Always powerful to, uh, to think about the truthfulness of the words there. So if you are elementary school age or younger, you are welcome to head downstairs. We got great sprouts and seedlings and nursery and all sorts of fun stuff down there. So unless you think I'm going to be that interesting that you want to stick around. So all of a sudden all the adults like go out there too. So, so hey, thank you so much for being here this morning. Appreciate it. Um, just really appreciate being together as a family, it's as a community, as the body of Christ. We are a little C church that's a part of the capital C church, and it's fun to be able to have other, uh, other Christian churches in the area. There's not a lot of them, but the, the, we, have, we have a lot of fun together. and just thankful for, for uh, a great family of believers. Um, it's also just encouraging to think that uh, God's family expands around the globe. And so there's a lot of joy, but we also just want to remember each other because I know there's, there's people right now that are fighting for their lives, um, that are under persecution, that are being bombed. Um, and it's just kind of challenging to think about in both Israel and Gaza, there are followers of Jesus um, that are getting caught up and, and that are casualties in a, in a pretty nasty conflict. And so want to definitely be remembering them and just praying for them. Um, so, but uh, yeah, thanks for being here. If you don't get the, I don't know, I do it about once a week, every other week. The, I, it's an app called Reach, and basically I just send out uh, kind of reminders of what's going on, announcements, and sometimes some words of encouragement, uh, things like that. If you're not getting those, it means I don't have your number. So if you want to get those, uh, be sure and, and catch me so I have your number and I can add you to that list. It's not like a group text or anything like that. I don't sell your information or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but just let me know. And then also, if you are, are new or new-ish, uh, or if you're old in Greenhouse and you've been here for a while, I um, want to encourage you just to make that personal connection because Sunday mornings are great. We love these, have great times of worship, and, and hopefully the teaching's okay. Um, but the good stuff happens in our Connect group. So if you aren't plugged into a Connect group, uh, really encourage you to do that. Those meet on typically the second and fourth weeks of the month. And we have four different groups that are meeting, and, and uh, that's, it's just a fun time of digging into God's Word and doing life together. So just want to plug those. So um, if you are new, welcome. If you are not new, be sure and go introduce yourself to someone who's new. We don't do awkward things like, okay, stand up and find the new people or anything like that. So just kidding. We're awkward. We just make fun of it. So, so there you go. All right. Speaking of awkward... Opening question, right? Every sermon has to have a good hook at the beginning to hook you in and have you on the edge of your seat to where you're like, what's going to come out of this guy's mouth, right? So I'm going to start off with a question. This is a safe place. What is the absolute worst thing that you've ever done in your life? I should have like closed the doors before you. <laughs> Don't worry, we're not going to raise our hand and have a time of sharing or anything like that. But no, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a partially joking, fully serious question. What is the worst thing that you have ever done in your life? Or, and or, what is the worst thing that's ever been done to you? What's the worst thing that you've ever experienced in your life? It could be a one-time thing. It could have been a seasonal thing. It could be an ongoing thing. It could be a past thing. It could be a present thing. 
But what is the absolute worst thing that you've done or has been done to you? Follow-up question. Has it been resolved? Has there been repentance? Has there been forgiveness? Has there been reconciliation? Has there been uh, growth from that? If so, what was the price for that reconciliation, that forgiveness, that freedom? If not, what has been the price of the lack of that freedom, that forgiveness, that reconciliation? How have these things stuck with us? How have these things maybe shaped us over the years? How are we still maybe paying for these things? So it's hard to believe that we have been in the Gospel of Matthew since last April. We have been doing a deep dive in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, this morning, we finally get to the pinnacle. It's, it's the one of the Jesus's one-two punch. And so the next couple weeks, we're going to wrap up before we start the Advent series. Um, but it's, it's incredible because this morning, we're going to look at the moment where Jesus gives his life to give us our lives back. Now, thanks to Dan for doing an amazing job last week of, of setting the stage where Jesus was betrayed and arrested. He stands a mock trial, and he's condemned. Now this morning, we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 27. We're going to read through uh, the rest of chapter 27 this morning. You can follow along in your Bibles. You can follow along up there um, or on your phones or wherever, but uh, we're going to jump in on verse 27. It says, some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet, scarlet robe on him. Now, what's interesting about this scarlet robe, it's either scarlet or purple, but either one represents authority and power. Victory of a conquering king. Sovereignty. You get the joke, Right? The king of the Jews, he's so powerful. Look how powerful he is. And so they put this robe on him, and, and they're making fun of him. They strip him naked, and then they put this robe on. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on its head. Now, the irony of the, of the thorn branches is that there's two possibilities of, of, of stuff that grows around that region. It could either be a thorn, brush, thorn bush, or it could be thorns from the date palm. Now, the thorns from the date palm could be up to like 10, 12 inches long, but probably these are probably two, three inches long to where you could weave it around there, and then they hit it onto his head. You know the irony? Did you hear what I just said? Date palm thorns. A week earlier, what came from the palm tree? Hosanna, Hosanna. They waved him in with the palm branches. Now they're making fun of him with the thorns of the palm tree. Tragic, right? And this insult goes so deep. And then they uh, place a reed stick in his right hand and a scepter, as a scepter. Now, the scepter represents, again, it's like the sovereignty of, of a king. It's, it's, uh, it's like making fun of his authority and sovereignty as, as a conquering king. And, and again, just the, the insults keep coming. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, king of the Jews! And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him over the head with it. They took the own stick of his sovereignty as a sovereign king and was beating him with, the, with that scepter. Guys, we cannot skip over just how horrific this scene was. 
Verse 31, when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. What's really interesting is that it was kind of common for Roman soldiers to dress up people as mock players. And they would have a, a, a courtyard area that was kind of like a gigantic checkers or chess board. And they would roll dice and they would, they would actually have the people move and take each other out, right? Like this is mockery at its absolute gro- most grotesque. It was brutal. Then we get into verse 32. It says, Along the way, they came across a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. So a lot of times we, we have in our picture, like every, every Sunday morning, we bring this cross out, right? And we kind of we put it over our shoulder. That's not accurate because what they would do is they had the cross piece, the, 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 the horizontal piece, was this, this big beam. It's like, you know, maybe not quite like a railroad tie, but, but it was a big chunk of, of wood that they would uh, tie or strap or, or nail. They hadn't nailed him yet, but they, they, uh, they had him carry that piece over his shoulder, on his back. I mean, it probably, I don't know if it weighed, you know, 80, 100, 150 pounds. It was heavy. And they would have him carry this cross beam to the cross, well, Jesus has been whipped, he has blood loss, he's weak. It's weird to think that Jesus didn't carry his cross the entire way, right? But he was fully God, but he was also fully human, and right now his flesh was weak, and so, so they actually enlisted this Simon as Cyrene to carry his cross part of the way. Verse 33, and they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, and, they had t- and when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. And they had nailed him to the cross. As After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. They sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one to his right and one to his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, now, well then, if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is king of so he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we'll believe him. You see the depth of that mockery there? Hey, Jesus, if you get yourself off the cross, I'll believe. That's mean. That is, that is, that is not even mean, it's just unbelievably cruel, right? He, he trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Again, we we kind of focus on this every year leading up to Easter, right? But he has this this horizontal bar of the cross and the, the vertical post. A lot of times we have these pictures of these tall crosses, right? And he's way up off the ground. Normally, they were about seven feet. They were about seven feet. 
And what they would do is they would, they would fix the horizontal beam to the vertical beam, and then they would either tie, but if they really wanted to inflict pain, they would nail. And they didn't nail through here because that would rip out. If you look, scientifically, medically speaking, if you nail right there, your bones will keep it in joint. It'll probably dislocate in the process, but it'll hold you there. And so he's hanging there like that. And then they also would nail through the feet. Here's the extra added cruelty. A lot of times, what do we see under the feet? This little perch. And what they would do is they would cross the feet over and they would take a long spike and drive it into that perch. Well, what's the cruelty of that perch? Isn't it nice to give them a little bit of opportunity to push up on? Yeah, but do you know what that does? It prolongs the agony of death. Because crucifixion most of the time happened by suffocation because as you're up like this, your lungs fill with blood and water and you actually suffocate a long, agonizing death. And so you're just like hanging there. You can't put your arms down. You're suffocating. You're trying to get breath. You're trying to get breath. And if you have just that little bit of push-up, you get temporary relief. But you just live longer. You struggle more. You experience more. Here's the cruelty of having the cross down low. If you're suspended by this much, what is your natural instinct? I can surely touch the ground, can't I? Guys, this was meant to dehumanize, to demoralize the people that they were punishing. This was reserved for the worst of criminals, people that went against the state, people that went against the empire, people like, like this was meant to absolutely destroy. And Golgotha, typically what they would do, if you've kind of seen movies about the Roman Empire, just thought about the Roman Empire. <laughs> there you go, I had to. Um, they would do it along the main roads in and out of a town. And they would have people hanging on the side of the road as a sign of warning of don't go against us. It was brutal. It was dehumanizing. And then the whole part about casting lots for the person's clothing, what was kind of a deal was, hey, Roman soldiers, we're not going to pay you much, but you get all the loot of the, pe- of the belongings of the people that we crucify. And so they were like, well, we're going we're gonna to divide up Jesus' possessions. The situation had to be familiar to Jesus. Why? Because he knew Scripture. There is a verse in Psalm, there's a passage in Psalm 22 where David, King David, before he was king, he's being pursued and chased. And he writes out in his journal that was later published, he writes about his struggles. Psalm 22, 14 through 18. My life is poured out like water, and all my, ba- all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like, sa- like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. David was writing about his struggles, but isn't it interesting? Psalms were recorded kind of like how we have music today. I always say that Psalms is the soundtrack for our life. You have ups, you have downs, you have everything in between. And so as Jesus is suffering, he has these songs that are playing back in his head. It's kind of like David's banger back years ago, right? Like, like, oh my gosh, how does this fit so closely to Jesus' experience? 
And then in verse 45, back to Matthew 27, it says, At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Now, there's debate. People want to deny this. People want to explain this. Maybe it was an eclipse, things like that. But if you want to nerd out with me for just a little bit, it couldn't have been an eclipse because of how the, the solar and lunar systems worked and things like this. This was, not, this was done around Passover. You don't have solar eclipse at Passover. This was a divine act of God. It echoes the original Passover, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, when one of the plagues was darkness for three days. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment for sin. The original Passover, God was going to punish the wickedness of sin, and so there was darkness for three days in that process. Now, as Jesus is being punished, there's darkness for three hours. Deep symbolism. Please don't miss it. What's being judged? What's happening here? Verse 46. About three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthana, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now remember Jesus singing in his head, Psalm 22? That song starts off like this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? As Jesus is dying on the cross, God's word came to his mind, it came to his heart, and he recites that out. I'm sure there's lots of things as far as it helps him express his agony in that moment, but we're going to get more to that in just a little bit. Finishing out this section, verse 47. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah, because Eloi, Eloi, or Eli, Eli is similar to Elijah. He was thinking, maybe he's calling for Elijah. Maybe God's not going to come. Maybe Elijah will come, right? But no, he was saying, my God, my God. Verse 48. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. And the, but the rest said, wait, let's see, if, we'll see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart. The tombs opened, and this is the fun part. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left, this, they left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection went and went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. The Roman officer... And the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly is the son of God. Verse 55, and many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to them. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. 
Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember that this, that deceiver once said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. And this will prevent the disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If, it hap- if that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate, re- Pilate repli- replied, take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. Now, what's really interesting here is, is it was kind of common that they would take a rope and they would take either wax or, or clay and they would, they would press it. That way they would know if, if someone could roll away the tomb and then put it back, well, you can't restore this, this seal, right? And so that's, that's kind of a, a little, uh, pardon the pun, Easter egg uh, in, in the Easter story, right? Of, of this little clay thing to where, so like, see, if this seal is broken, we know like, like what's going on? This, we're, we're trying to foolproof this thing here. At the surface, the story looks awful. Jesus has just failed. It's over. Everything that he did was down the drain. But Psalm 22 coming to Jesus' heart makes sense, and it helps us understand this story. Because remember, it starts off, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for, from, uh, groan for help? But then it continues in verse 3 through 5. Yet, yet, I feel this abandonment. I don't know where to look to for help. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. The physical agony that he was experiencing was unbelievable. I cannot imagine going through that. The spiritual was astronomically worse. Because what happened was that he was taking on all the sins of humanity, and because of that, he was temporarily separated from God the Father because of those sins. Yet, he kept it all in perspective. In his cry of agony beneath all of his real pain, there was also an absolute trust, an absolute faith, an absolute surrendering to the sovereignty of God the Father. And as a sign of this sovereignty, I love it. Jesus wasn't killed. He surrendered. It says, he gave up his spirit. And I think the, the actual language there is very important for us to remember because it talks about how Jesus is the one who gave up his last breath. He released his spirit. It was voluntary. He wasn't defeated. He was victorious. And what happened in that moment? One of the most iconic moments in all of history, this curtain, this veil who had been built as a separation. If you guys were, were at uh, the 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 traveling tabernacle, we walk through that, right? You have the, the outer court, you have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holy places. And there was this curtain that was to separate. And the only person that could go in to the holy of holies was the high priest once a year to make sacrifice for the nation. 
It was meant as a barrier. God's glory, his holiness, his, his perfection could not be tainted by the dirtiness of humanity. But Jesus makes a way. Why? Because God comes through and now he brings us back through. And there's significance. If it was from the bottom, you could maybe argue that, that well, you know, some little vandals came in and ripped it from the bottom. No, it's from the top down. That shows that this was God and God only. Now, what's really cool is that the word here for it ripping is schizo. And that's the same word that when Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry, the heavens schizoed. The heavens were ripped, were wrenched open, and the Spirit of God came down upon him. The most, one of the most Trinitarian uh, experiences in the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all right there in one setting, doing their thing. Instead of religious practices, instead of some law, some moral code, instead of an organization, instead of ordinances, instead of a building, instead of idols, we find life and access to God only through Jesus. I put some passages from Hebrews in there. We won't go through them, but I'd, they're on your card. I'd really encourage you to go through those passages later on today because they speak to Jesus as the high priest who did what only he could do, what we can't do. We can go and make sacrifices over and over and over again, but we're going to have to continue to make those sacrifices over and over again. We're not qualified to, to, to do that. Only Jesus is. And then we get into the part where the rocks sh- uh, schizoed as well, and then these dead bones are brought back to life. That's a weird thing. So many questions that I have that I want to ask Jesus when I, when I meet him face to face. But again, it happened. And, and what's cool is that it actually echoes these Old, Testament, these Old Testament prophecies about how God would breathe life into these dead bones. There is not hopelessness. There is victory. The key to understanding all of this comes from the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. And it goes like this. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turn our backs on him and look the other way. He was despised and we did not care. One of the biggest problems that I have in Christian culture today is that we think we have to make Jesus sexy. Churches are obsessed about making Jesus relevant and cool and amazing. And don't you want to be a part of the in crowd, the cool crowd? Jesus wasn't that good looking. He wasn't that cool. People made fun of him. People mocked him. I mean, even crowds came up to his face and disrespected him. There was nothing about him that people, like, (gasps) until he revealed who he really was. And that's when these BA uh, uh, soldiers in the garden, where's Jesus? I am. (laughs) And they go flying on their butts, right? I think we have to remember of the humility of Jesus. This is God become flesh. He didn't come in like, yeah, you know who I am. I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty special. Yeah, you can hang out with me if you want, you know. I'll make some time for you, you know. 
screw that. <laughs> Sorry, but... Sometimes we try to turn Jesus into something that he never wanted to be. He was real. He looked like you and I. He struggled like you and I. I'm I'm imagining that that probably hurt when people were taunting him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus wasn't the whole time going through autopilot. He was fully God and fully human, flesh and blood. How else could God take on the sins if he didn't become like us? Verse 4, yet, the word of the day is yet. It was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have, led, we have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. And his life was cut short midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to. But it was the good, the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Guys, this was prophetic. This was written years and years and years before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth in bodily form. This is the story of Jesus. Detail for detail. So two things here. One, what we do and what it means for Jesus. You have it up here. You also have it on your card. There's a couple things here. One, what do we do? Weakness. We are weak. What's interesting is that, that gr- the, the word there actually means grief, sickness. We're sick. We're sick. And what does that mean for him? He carries it. He puts it up. He, the word there means to take up, to lift up, to carry off. As he carries the cross, he takes on our sickness and he carries it off. Our sorrows, the word there means pain, affliction. What does that mean for him? He's weighed down. What's crazy though is a lot of times we think it's weighed down like this, but the word literally doesn't mean just weighed down. It means down and out. He drags himself along. It doesn't mean that he's defeated. It means under all that weight. He drags himself along. Our rebellion, that word 
Well, that word pesa means rebellion or sin. Sin is a real thing. In a world that wants to deny ultimate truth but yet insists on its own ultimate truth, a little bit of hypocrisy there, right? Um, but sin is a real thing. What does that mean for him? He's pierced. Now, the interesting thing about the word halal for, for pierced means, yes, wounded, pierced through, but there's a deeper meaning to it. It means that, that it's profaned and defiled. Our sin defiles and profanes the purity of Jesus' holiness. But he takes that on. And then our sins, again, that, that word means iniquity, depravity, our guilt. What does that do for Jesus? He is crushed by it. And that word crushed means literally crushed, broken and shattered into pieces. So that's what we do for him and what he does. But now let's look at what he does for us and what it means for us. He is beaten. Now, beaten literally means disciplined. It's not just got the crap kicked out of him. It means he was disciplined. There was intention. There was purpose on this whole thing. And what does that mean for us? We experience salom, which means peace. We are made whole. We are made complete. And then it says he's whipped. You know what that word means? Whipped. (laughs) It means he was literally whipped. He had scars. He was shred to pieces. Why? So that we could be healed. You know what healed means? Healed. Too often we live in defeat when the victory's already been won for us. We're stuck in doubt, in fear, in addiction, in anger, in all these things. We think that is the condition of our heart. Jesus has already given his life and provided victory for us. He wants us to walk in that wholeness, in that healing, because he's paid the price for all the other gunk. So here's the big idea. Jesus gave his life to give us ours back. He stood in our place. He paid the price. He took on our brokenness, our weakness, our sickness, the things that we've done, the things that have been done to us, the things that we feel like we need to carry, the things that we need to pay the price for still. And, and well, maybe Jesus is just giving me a sin loan and now I got to be a good boy or a good girl and pay it back for the rest of my life. He gave his life. We cannot add to or subtract from his gift. It's all or nothing. And he gives us our life back. Romans 5, 17 and 18 and 21 says this, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation to everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous, right with God. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the one worst thing that you've ever done in your life? When I asked that question beforehand, you're probably like, why would you ask that? That's rude. Do you know how bad I've struggled with that? Do you know how much that still 
consumes my thinking or the things that have been done to us that we carry and we're like, that's, I mean, how dare we talk about this in church, right? We should talk about rainbows and unicorns, right? Like, come on, it'd make me happy, right? But when we read this story, what, what are those things? Those things are as far as the east is from the west. Jesus has, has taken those things and he's, he's gotten rid of them. And he said, I have paid the price so that you don't have to. That's the gift of grace. I want you to have life and life abundantly. Stop letting those things control you. Stop dragging that crud back into your life. Stop holding on to those attitudes. Stop you know, feeding those addictions. Stop nurturing all this yuckiness. Now, here's again the irony of our world. It's not okay to talk about sin. It's not okay to talk about things that are wrong. But yet, what does our world do? It has its own twisted moral code to where if you're not this, then you're on the out and we're going to cancel you. Our world does not understand grace. And unfortunately, so much of the quote-unquote Christian world has been influenced by that. And so we need to understand what it means to be people of grace, recipients of grace, people who have been forgiven, who have been released, who have been set free, who have been given life. That needs to be how we're characterized. Yes, we're human. We're going to struggle. But yet in the midst of the struggle, yet we have victory. The temporary issues, the temporary circumstances will not define us. The eternal realities will define the circumstances. We need to fix our minds on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, because he's the one who made it possible, and he's the one who is leading us along the way. The point isn't how bad our sin is. Our sin is bad. The point is how good Jesus' grace is. It's so much better. He gave everything to set us free now and forever. Let's walk in that. Let's, let's move from unbelief to belief, right? Because that's how we close every Sunday, is how do we as disciples, as followers of Jesus, or people who might not yet know Jesus and given their lives to Jesus, how do we move from unbelief? And we can say, no, I believe in Jesus and grace, and I'm saved by faith through grace and in Christ alone, and I know that. But do we believe it? Do we walk in that? Or do we have this up here, but yet the rest of our lives still operates by the old system? So here's a couple questions to close out with. One, what are the areas of weakness, grief, sickness, sorrow, pain, affliction, rebellion, sin, and guilt that we still hold on to? Do an inventory. Look in the mirror. Ask God. Say, Spirit, show me what's going on in my mind and my heart. I might not even know what's happening, but God, reveal that to me. Help me to see what's really happening. You ever have one of those days where all of a sudden you realize your jaw just hurts really, really bad? And all of a sudden you realize it's because I've been gritting my teeth for the last couple hours. (laughs) I didn't realize I was gritting my teeth, and now all of a sudden I feel the pain. Ask God to show us where the pain is coming from. Where are we gritting our teeth in our life? Where are we living in unbelief? 
And how do we surrender that to him? What price are we paying for those unsurrendered areas? And how can we find our yet? How can we find that moment of saying, yes, I am struggling, I am hurting, I am, I am so down right now, I am so whatever, but yet I surrender this to you, and because I surrender to you, I am on the victorious side. I can live in the victory and the freedom of the transformation of Jesus. This morning, we're going to close out. Um, last week, uh, we talked, or actually two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus talking about the Last Supper and how it foretold of what he was going to do. And so it's kind of more fitting this morning to actually close out by celebrating, observing communion. Because Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This wasn't just a temporary fix. This was the ultimate fix. This was the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. And so now we get to remember that, to celebrate that, to remind ourselves and each other of what Jesus did and what that means for us. So this morning, if you have put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, past is gone, and your Lord, your future is determined, then this is for you. If you've prayed the prayer a long time ago, this is for you. If you're going to pray that prayer right now, this is for you. But let's experience, let's ask God just to reveal to us the significance of the gift that he gave. He knew what he was doing. It wasn't something that was glib or easy or temporary. It was powerful. It cost him everything, but yet he gladly did it for all of humanity. So I'm going to pray. The band can come up, and we're going to close out with two songs. You can come up. If you have been here, you're familiar. You can take the bread and dip it in one of the cups. And as you do that, just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for doing what I couldn't do. Thank you for the fact that this changes everything about my life now and forever. And then you can come back and pray and, or come back and sit and continue to worship. If, if, if you like prayer, um, you find Drew or myself in the back or, or someone. And uh, yeah, you can process this together. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your gift. I know this is a heavy Sunday. Um, There's a lot of gory details. But yet, God, I think it's important for us to remember the price tag of the gift that you gave us. Because if we have a low view of the price tag that it costs you, we won't appreciate it as much. But God, if we understand the depth that you went to, the lengths that you went to for us, it completely redefines our lives. It completely sheds new light on the things that we face. The things that we've done, the things that have been done to us, the things that we struggle with in this world. There is nothing in this world that will be more powerful than what you did on the cross. Nothing. 
God, we want to surrender to that. God, this morning I pray that if there's anybody here that's stuck living in defeat, God, I pray that in this moment they remember that they are on the victorious side. The battle has been won. We need to stop fighting out of our own strength. We need to surrender to your strength. God, you gave us your spirit. You dwell in our lives and our hearts and our minds. God, you transform us from the inside out. You don't make us squeaky clean goody two-shoes. God, you make us real followers of you. People who are filled with a love, with a passion, with a freedom, with a desire to experience the goodness of this life that you've given us and to share that with those around us. God, you were the lamb that roared like a lion. That's the spirit that you give us. And I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that that already knows you, but wants to just say, God, I just want to experience this more. God, we surrender to that. We surrender the things that we struggle with to you. God, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet surrendered to you, God, I pray that in this moment they could pray this prayer of, of God, thank you for dying for my sin, my brokenness. God, thank you for seeing the struggles that I've had, that I have. But God, you love me, you care for me, you paid the price for me.